The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 14. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. Hot on the heels of Macbeth's soliloquy, in which he fantasises about the terrible implications of killing the king in this life and in the next, he has lamented that he has no spur to prick the sides of his intent. He fears that it's only his ambition that is egging him on and might lead him to perdition. None too subtly, Shakespeare has Lady Macbeth enter immediately after he says this line. She's got up from the banquet to come and check on Macbeth. The fact of his having left the dinner table is strange enough. Her having to follow him is even more egregious. Bear in mind, they have the king at dinner with them. Macbeth spots her as she enters. There's a powerful tension in this scene, since we've seen servants coming and going, we have a king and his retinue at dinner just off stage, and really she needs him back at the party with his innocent flower face on as quickly as possible. As she arrives, Macbeth asks, How now? What news? This almost could be comical, as if she's returned from a journey or she's brought news rather than come to snap him out of his reveries. This dynamic of her being practical while he gets lost in his thoughts will be crucial in coming scenes. Right now, Lady Macbeth is all business. He has almost supped. Why have you left the chamber? She's saying that Duncan is almost finished dinner. Why is Macbeth out here away from the table? And Macbeth continues with his almost infantile questions, asking, Have he asked for me? He's wondering if the king noticed that he left the room. Of course the guest noticed that the host disappeared. Lady Macbeth is exasperated as she replies, No, you not, he has. Now Macbeth levels with her, attempting to explain where his head is at. We will proceed no further in this business. He hath honoured me of late, and I have bought golden opinions from all sorts of people, which would be worn now in their newest gloss, not cast aside so soon. So much for the idea of killing the king and catching the nearest way. Macbeth has changed his mind. They will proceed no further. Duncan has indeed honoured Macbeth of late, as we know. Macbeth here also reveals a little personal weakness. He says he has bought golden opinions from all sorts of people. And all sorts of people is Shakespeare's own coinage. It's the first time we've heard this phrase. His public standing is high. His reputation is good. He's an acknowledged hero. Yet again, we have an image of clothing. He sees these golden opinions as something he can wear, and he wants to wear them now that they are shining brightly in their newest gloss, as he puts it, rather than killing the king and seizing power and casting aside all of these good opinions. Given the ambition that Macbeth has been displaying throughout the play so far, this is a little surprising but it will have a payoff in a magnificent speech in Act 5. Lady Macbeth is not impressed with this worry. They've had a plan, and it's a good one, and she is disgusted that her husband seems to be backing out like this. As she and Macbeth proceed through this fateful evening, they will share lines of verse in more and more extraordinary ways. For now, she merely cuts him off as she asks, Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since, and wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? 
From this time, such I account thy love. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemst the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would, like the poor cat in the adage? This is a withering speech. She picks up a different clothing metaphor. Rather than these golden opinions, she's grilling him on the hope, the ambition in which he had draped himself as they were cooking up this plan. She asks if this was the hope of a drunken man, who's had a little sleep rather than doing the necessary, waking up now with a hangover and realising all of the stupid things that he said or suggested while he was carousing the night before. She deftly paints a picture of a suffering man, green and pale after too much booze, horrified now at the thought of ideas that came so freely with the help of alcohol. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since, and wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? She really goes for him now, telling him that from now on she'll consider his love no better than the madcap ideas of a drunk. From this time such I account thy love. Bear in mind, our very first introduction to this woman was a speech in which she told us that her husband would love to be great and powerful, but he doesn't quite have the evil in him to go the distance. And so she knows she has to pour her spirits in his ear. And that's what she's doing here. Remember that a spur is a piece of spiked metal that digs into an animal's sides to make it move. So none of this is gentle. She continues to needle him. Is he really so afraid to have his actions and his bravery match the ideas he has in his head? Earlier on, we heard Macbeth described as Valor's minion. Now his own wife is wondering why all of this Valor doesn't seem to want to get him where he himself has said he wants to go. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Now that he's sober after all these drunken fantasies, is he afraid to go after what he said he wanted when he was drunk on all this hope and ambition? Then she puts things another way. She wonders, would he rather have the crown or live his life thinking about it? She reminds him that he wants the crown, that he considers it the most important thing in the world, the ornament of life. But she plays with his words too. She's almost mocking him, wondering if he really wants the crown, which he esteems as this precious goal, while also wanting to live in the high esteem of these golden opinions he's mentioned. She points out that his unnecessary preoccupation with other people's opinions is getting in the way of what's really important. I dare not lose this standing seems more important to Macbeth than I would become king. It's a brilliantly crafted piece of writing. Lady Macbeth really knows her man. Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemst the ornament of life and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would like the poor cat of the adage? She ends this little speech with a reference to a cat in an adage, or a popular saying. I've worked on two separate productions of this play, and I studied it for the leaving certificate, but for some reason I never actually heard what this adage might be. Perhaps my teachers or my colleagues were so well aware of it that it never needed explanation. 
but I went on a deep dive today looking to find it, and I can tell you that the saying is that the poor cat really wanted to eat some fish, but didn't want to get her feet wet. Lady Macbeth's dismantling of her husband's reticence and his worry about other people is precise and expertly crafted. She knows exactly what to say to her husband, and she gets to him. He cuts her off, ending her line, Pretty peace, I dare do all that may become a man, who dares do more is none. Prithee, a contraction of I pray you or I pray thee, is a fairly standard interjection. Prithee peace is as nice a way of saying shut up as Shakespeare ever wrote. Macbeth is insisting that he's plenty brave. He dares do everything a man may do. And anyone braver, anyone who would do any more than he would, is beyond what a man can be. I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. It's a slightly strange kind of phrase, and to our ears the construction makes it sound as if he's saying that whoever might do more than Macbeth is a coward and not a man at all. But Shakespeare uses this kind of phrase in Measure for Measure as well, when he has Angelo push Isabella on the limits of her gender. He says, be that you are, that is, a woman. If you be more, you're none. Later in the play, Macbeth will speak to some of his employees and question where they belong in the catalogue of men. Manhood and what becomes a man and what makes a man a man are all at issue here. Even more complicated is the fact that it's coming from a woman who recently prayed to the forces of darkness to unsex her, and it's she that is pushing his buttons here. Again, taking his image and twisting it, Lady Macbeth counters Macbeth's insistence that he is a man and does all that a man might dare do. She asks, What beast was it, then, that made you break this enterprise to me? If a man wouldn't dare kill his king here tonight, what kind of beast or animal was it that suggested it to her in the first place? There have been some commentators who suggest, rather fancifully, that we're missing a scene from the play as it now stands, in which Macbeth would have laid out this plan. This idea has been quite successfully quashed, since, after all, we have had a scene in which they talk about the knight's impending business, and Lady Macbeth has insisted that Macbeth leave everything to her. Perhaps this wasn't the wisest idea, since it left Macbeth with enough time to think it over and decide to back out. So here she's asking, this enterprise that he's broken to her is what they've discussed earlier in the evening, and now she's wondering what on earth he thinks he's doing. Lady Macbeth has plenty more to say, but we're going to save her exhortations for the next episode. You won't want to miss it, as we will be discussing some really thorny issues for this ever-intriguing pair, and while I may not have all the answers, I hope that at least we'll manage to ask the right questions. For now, I want to thank you for tuning in and for some very kind donations this week on coffee, and I hope you'll join me next time. I'll speak to you then.